You're listening to Why Try. Hey listeners, have you ever had that experience where you're eating a bag of potato chips and you sort of wake up and realize you've somehow plowed through three quarters of the bag? I have, uh, recently actually. Or maybe there are some things in your own life that you wish didn't bother you so badly. I can relate to that too. Luckily for us, Brad has a lot of knowledge on not just why our brains act this way, but what we can do about it. He shares some extremely valuable, maybe even life-changing insights, and I hope our conversation is as fun and powerful for you as it was for me. One of the questions that people often ask, like, what is a brain coach and how did that happen? My background is that I am a licensed clinical social worker by training, but I'm a businessman by family, birth, and growth. So I grew up uh, in Japan. My father was an international businessman, one of the early total quality management. And so I grew up hearing about total quality management and what gets measured gets managed and all those things at dinner table. And then I found that through college, I was interested in ideas and in people. And so I became a philosophy graduate student first, and I didn't finish being philosophy, and I got a social work mental health. So I went into mental health because it helped people change their lives and found pretty quickly that my interest in business kept as well. So I ended up then helping co-found mental health care company focused in crisis intervention and grew to be a national healthcare company. So that was in the early 90s and then through the 2000s. After 9-11, I was asked to go back to New York to work with NYPD who were dealing with post-traumatic stress because I'd already begun to have a reputation in being able to work with people in trauma situation. And that's really then where I really focused on the brain, on teaching people what was happening. Because I found in working with with the emergency services personnel after 9-11, what I found is that some of them could recover very quickly from trauma and others couldn't. And zeroed in that what was happening was not about the particular trauma of 9-11. It was about how they were programming their brains basically to be able to stay in the trauma or be able to let it go. And I realized that the most effective approach was a what I call a practical brain science, neuroeducational teaching people what they were doing and how their brains work. And when they did that, they'll have the strategies understanding of their then they're able to change all experience because emotions are best thought of as habit. So that led me to the lifetime optimization was a physical clinic for a while, focusing on the brain using neurofeedback and neuroeducational approach. And I found that the neuroeducational, the teaching, the learning about the brain, brain coach Brad part of it, the practical brain science, was actually the most effective. That's what people really needed. And so that's been my focus is always looking for ways to help people improve their lives. That's the same reason I got into mental health in the first place, and to do it in a way that really lasts. So that's a long answer to, to a short question. Uh, what makes you good at that, do you think? Probably two or three related factors. The first is passion. I, I really care about it. I'm incredibly em- empathic toward people, and their success and their happiness really matters to me. One of the things that motivates me the most is the goal of reducing unnecessary suffering. And I see so much unnecessary suffering because people don't know how their brains work. What people don't know interferes with their ability to produce happiness. Now that's a a related thing. There's a great work that that people can read by Daniel Gilbert called Stumbling on Happiness. And it's a focus in social psychology research, basically all the research that shows how it is that people are so bad at predicting what's gonna make them happy. Well, what do you think the biggest barrier to health and happiness is for most people? Well, my stock answer on that is not knowing how their brain works. (laughs) Because to unpack that just a little, when people don't know how their brain works, then that leads them to assumptions about the world 
and to behaviors and especially emotional behaviors that are dysfunctional. Here's one of the most basic things. As I said, I believe the best way to think about emotions is as habits, but that's not what they feel like. They feel like that they're being driven directly by what's happening in the world. They feel like that they're coming to us, surging from the inside, being driven by something in the outside, so that people are actually taught this very early from a childhood that that their emotions are out of their control. How many parents have, with at least two children, have ever said to one of the children, stop poking your brother, it makes him sad, or it makes him angry, or it makes him whatever. That we're taught early on that other people's behavior make us feel a particular way, and that therefore we're not in, in control of that. We have to change the world in order to to change our emotions. But it, once you start to think about emotions as habits instead, you can incorporate that. Well, of course, it happens that way because in fact, habits get driven by a cue, a trigger. The brain has to know when to run the particular habit. So it is triggered by g generally external, but it can be an internal thing as well, but it's, it's triggered and then it just runs. And so that's why it feels like it's out of control because habits are, that's why it feels like it's out of control because habits are, are, are basically a low energy function in the brain where the, when I say low energy, that the brain isn't using a lot of energy, it is, it, it is run something and basically turned off the sensors that say, keep your eyes open for what else we should do, right? And that takes energy. It's just a script that already exists. Exactly. And so running that then allows the brain to reserve energy for emergent situations. And so the brain's always looking to turn everything to a habit. And that's what's happening with emotions as well. So the, one of the reasons I'm good at this work is because I'm passionate about that and I'm, I'm good at teaching people those things. And that the this barrier to happiness that when people don't know how their brain works, right? They, for example, with emotions, and they then they assume they have to change the external world in order to feel differently, as opposed to saying, "Oh, well, if I think of it as a habit, that explains both why it is that I I can control or change it myself, how I can be happy even if the external world doesn't change, and it also explains why it's difficult because habits once they're in place." are meant to be easy to run and hard to change. And so that I think is the, the, the biggest, that, that's one of the examples and probably the biggest example of the, the barrier to, to happiness and, and to success is misunderstandings about how the brain works in that case around emotion. Yeah, so I think a natural question would be how do people change their emotional state and maybe start at like in, a, in any given moment, how do they kind of take control of their emotional state and then how can they build that into a new habit that's uh, more desirable for them? Sure, that's a great question. And I think that is really, again, the focus for me, which is always on practical things. If I look at what my skill set is, what what makes me good at it is I'm really good at reading the original research, especially in neuroscience and in social psychology, and translating that into strategies, saying, oh, okay, well, th there's a way to take that insight even that correlation, even if we're not exactly sure that that's exact, exactly how it works, but this is what happens with people, well, we can turn that into a strategy and let's, uh, then people can use that to feel happier. So the one of the things that I've done is I've taken the understanding, the, the research on habit, and turned it into a process, a four-step process that I think captures the research. I call it the FIRE process, and it's based on a really important description 
of how the brain works that most people have heard of. Uh, the description is called Hebb's Law, but that's not important to people. What's important is what it says, which is that neurons that fire together wire together. And so I have used the acronym of FIRE for the FIRE process for how to change a habit. And that's actually itself working on something that the, the a way the brain is good at something, which I used to hate acronyms. When I was younger, like, why do all these speakers always use acronyms? Well, it turns out they're taking advantage of Hebb's Law, neurons that fire together, wire together. That by using an acronym, you're, a, you're accessing wiring that's already there because people think in words and, and they think in those letters. And so I can say the fire process, and now you know, okay, well, it's four steps. One of them's gonna start with F, right? I-R-E, and that gives you a framework that makes it easier for you to remember. And so that's one of the reasons why acronyms are actually a good thing. If you can get the real content, you can stuff it inside your acronym. So back to, changing habit or building habit because building habits and changing habits are actually pretty much the same thing because you're almost always your brain already has a something that it would do in a circumstance that you where you wanted to do something else and so there is some kind of habit present want to build a new habit you have to to change the old habit so the fire process the f stands for find it's one of the ones where it's a little bit of a stretch to get into the acronym but the the key thing on on that piece why that's so important is, as I said, a habit is instruction to the brain to do a certain thing in a certain circumstance, what's called a cue. So it's often a set of envir- of cues, a set of, a set of information in the environment. The brain says, okay, in this information, as you say, run this script, do this instead. So what that means is that when the brain is in a new circumstance, I like to think of it as it's, it's like it's in a, in a lobby. In, a, in an environment where there's lots of doors, there's lots of possibilities, and the brain's checking them all out. But when a habit is actually running, then it's like you've opened one of those doors and you're now in a hallway. You're out of the lobby where there's lots of these choices, paying attention to lots of things. Now you're in this dark hallway where the, the, the brain kind of turns off and you actually see brain energy dip as a habit is active. And so what that means then is that the brain is not going to start to pay attention again until it gets to the end of that habit, to the end of that hallway. If you want to change the habit, you have to change that process. You have That's the F for the find. You have to make your brain recognize that you are giving it new instructions. You're changing the script. And now one step into the hallway, you, you need windows, right? Or you need new doors in there. And so you have to tell the brain, hey, pay attention in these circumstances. And you're basically creating a competing narrative for your brain where it used to say, oh, I stopped paying attention. Now you're saying, no, you need to pay. So that's a, it's really important for people to know and understand that because so often people get frustrated in trying to change a habit because they tell themselves they're going to do something different this time, and then they keep finding themselves doing the same old thing. It's so important to start with the F, the find. You've got to make attention active. And then the second step in habit change is the I, and that's for interrupt. And that basically means that not only do you tell your brain that it needs to pay attention here, it needs to be open to doing something, you have to actively interfere with its ability to do the old thing. Because even if you're conscious or aware, you're, you will have momentum toward doing whatever you used to do. And so the, the, those two processes are not completely separate. The often what alerts your brain to pay attention can also be the thing that interrupts the old process. And it's just important for people to realize that they really have to get in the way of their old 
momentum. A great metaphor for this, a lot of people use it, scratching a CD or a Blu-ray disc, that it can't play the same thing, scratched it. And so that's why a lot of the interrupt strategies are about you know, the old habit. Recapping then, somebody wants to change a habit, they have to recognize, okay, first thing I have to do is I have to create some cues in the environment so I'll remember to pay attention around the time that the habit starts. And then I have to also actively do something that will interfere with my old momentum. And then the third thing, the natural thing is then fire, F-I-R, the R is replace. I have to have something that I'm going to do instead <laughs> because if I don't have something there, if I don't replace it and then I don't E for exercise it, I don't practice it, then the old habit will be paramount. So that's the fire. You got to find it, you got to interrupt it, you have to replace it, and then you have to exercise. And the reason that's so important is that even in my language, I use the natural language of breaking habits. You might be interested to know that you don't actually break habits. You, you layer them. Anne Graybill in her labs at MIT has been doing rat studies that are really interesting because she can connect wires to individual neurons, can track the neural activity, and then she can use what's called optogenetics, which basically design shine a laser on a single neuron or on a circuit, and she can turn it off. So what happens, what she's been able to do with rats in a maze is that she's been able to see what's happening in the rat's brain when it first enters a maze, when it's put in a maze for the first time. And what happens is lots and lots of activity because, again, it's in a lobby. It's new. Then it goes through the, the maze, and when it finds the reward, then uh, then all through that, there's high spikes of activity. If you put it in the same maze several times and it starts to know where the reward is, now you see different activity. What You see a pattern of high activity right at the beginning, and then it recognizes, oh, this is where I am. Low activity all the way to the reward, to the chocolate or cheese or whatever, and then high activity when it's being rewarded. And in the brain, what you see is, in a, in a particular area of the brain called the, the striatum, you have a new circuit arise that is the entire habit in a single circuit. So instead of multiple connected ones, it's a single one. So she can actually shine a laser on that circuit. And what happens is it turns off the entire habit for the rat. And in that case, it falls back on whatever it used to do in that circumstance. So I didn't explain that really well. So let me just say again that that if the rat had any habit there before, when it runs through the, the maze multiple times, it'll build a new habit. And we would call that, oh, it broke the old habit. But all that really happened was that a new habit got layered on top when she shines a laser and turns off that. So it has like habit one, habit two, habit three. Yep. And then you turn off habit three and it just goes right back to habit two. That's right without any change. Okay, that's super interesting, because that's actually something I was curious about. How can people use this method to become happier or maybe like more successful to, to have more of the life that they wanna have? First thing is that the way they think about things, the way they think about their emotions, the way they think about their behaviors, to think about it as a habit and to always be asking the question, oh, okay, if I'm not getting the result I want, if I'm doing something in particular, if I'm doing something that I wish I wasn't, then that just means I have a habit. And if I'm feeling something that I want to feel, well, that means that, that there, there are neurons that are firing that are wired together. So I need to ask myself, well, what do I want to have to experience instead? And how can I wire those neurons so that they'll fire instead? So that I, I think that one of the first ways that people can do it is, that, is to think of it as that their emotions and their behaviors are all 
the best thought of as habits or strategies at the at the brain level. And if they're getting bad results and they're broken or they're sick or anything, it just means they've got poor strategies, they've got poor habits. And so to th- to think of it is to think of it as very practical. It's always go, oh well, huh, that didn't work, or boy, that 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 was a really lousy experience. Instead of a label of I'm bad, to think, oh well, then that that there must be a habit in here somewhere that isn't functional for me. And then secondly, is to then think about the, so, so this really fits with entrepreneurship, is to think about their all their life, and in particular, I keep coming back to emotion, both my expertise is in and where so many people get hung up, is to think of, of their emotions from a practical perspective of how can I get the results I want? How can it be goal-oriented? If this is how I feel in a certain environment, it's not working for me, how do I want to feel? And then what habits do I need to develop to get there? That's step one. And then step two is to apply the things like the, the habit formula, the fire process to the circumstance. And again, to be entrepreneurial, kind of goal-oriented, to check and see the results you're getting, and then keep ad- adopting it, adapting it until you're getting the results you want. There's one thing that I want to talk about in relation to that, that I think is probably the most powerful technique that I've developed. And I call it celebrating awareness because it's a process to help people stop beating up on themselves. And that to me is the obstacle to a lot of people making improvements is that when they things don't work the way they want, they beat up on themselves. And in the brain, the process of beating up on themselves actually, ironically, paradoxically, actually makes it more likely that they're going to keep doing it. And that's why they get hung up because they're taking steps to make it better that are actually made. Yeah, do you want to talk more about that? And then, I mean, in your book, you talked about celebrating, like noticing. So even if someone if someone feels like a bad habit start to start to fire, or like start to um, like run that script, and then they notice that that's, that's happening or that they kind of made a mistake or did, did something they didn't want to do, to instead of saying, like beating themselves up about it, to like, like give themselves a pat on the back and kind of say like, yeah, yeah, like I'm, I'm aware. And they're like, they're happy about being aware of that. Yeah, that's exactly right. That That's the way the process works that the real quickly, people might, it might be helpful to help people understand why it is that people keep beating up on themselves if it really does backfire. And so here's the reason. So th- you answered me this question. Why do people beat up on themselves? Charitably, like a generous e- example, uh, generous answer what's the goal i think because they want to do better that's right so people want to do better and they're thinking if i give myself pain then i'll do something different the next time right and that actually shows an insight into how the brain works that the brain generally moves away from pain so that's a good insight the problem is that doing something making a mistake doing something you don't want to do if it's a habit then do you often know immediately when you've started the process of doing that thing that doesn't work, are you immediately aware if it's a habit? No, it's almost like you wake up like during or after yeah. it and you're like, what am I doing? Like halfway through a bag of potato chips yeah, or something, yeah. you're like, that was family size. Yes. Like, what am I doing? Exactly. Right. Because it's a habit because you've told your brain, oh, don't pay attention. So people can't give themselves the pain at the time that they begin the behavior. Instead, they have to give themselves pain when they become aware that they're doing the behavior. So if you think of it as a flowchart, and the goal is to have the, the mistake or the behavior immediately met with pain, so the brain learns, oh, don't do that. Instead, what's happening is that you have behavior, then you have awareness, and then you have pain. So in the brain, you're programming your brain, 
ooh, this awareness is painful. And therefore, your brain becomes less aware, and so you're even more likely to get further along in the potato chips. So you just bury your head in the sand. <laughs> exactly. And so you're actually programming your brain not to be aware. In my book, The Unworried Brain, as you mentioned, I used the example that one of my clients once told me when he got this, he's like, oh, it's like I have a dog who runs away, and every time the dog comes home, I'm so upset, I scream at him, I'm teaching my dog, don't come home. I'm punishing him when he gives the behavior I want. And so in this case, you're punishing your brain every time you become aware. And so as you mentioned, the solution to that is both logical and kind of... It's counterintuitive for sure. Counterintuitive and weird. I mean, it's logical once you realize it, but it's counterintuitive because what you have to do instead is you have to teach your brain that awareness is exactly what you want. And to do that, you want to celebrate it. You want to reward yourself every time you become aware that you're doing this stupid thing or this mistake, this whatever it is. Now, of course, the obvious challenge for many people immediately is that it feels like they're celebrating the mistake. And so they have to, you have to really emphasize this narrative of yourself. No, I'm celebrating my awareness because I want to know so I can change. Right. You have to think for kind of um, live for like the next step in the process. Like, like, great. I noticed now I can do better. And like, you can kind of like shift your thinking into that. Exactly. And so the, it's actually really effective and as counterintuitive it is that the people, the moment they notice that they, they're doing something, if they, if they do their touchdown dance and if they can't do it out loud, even do it in their head because the research on mental rehearsal and visualization shows that it's activating many of the same neurons that the actual behavior does. So you're actually making the change. If you, if you imagine yourself doing your touchdown dance, you're activating the same reward center. And if you do that, the more intensely and vividly you do that, the more your brain will repeat that behavior, the awareness. And so what will happen is that now your brain will start to tell you about a quarter of the way through the potato chip bag and then a little way through. And then right as you reach for the potato chip bag, which of course is what you want. And you only get that by celebrating every time you're three quarters through. Now the immediate, and you realize that and you're going like, oh, I can't believe it. Oh, oh, but I just realized it. Oh, yay me, uh, I guess. <laughs> and, and so it kind of starts slow like that. And then people can, can really get into that where they're like, yeah, my brain, I get the best brain ever. And, and what, what are you doing is you're activating more intensity and that intensity increases the power of each repetition. And when you do that, then you're keeping yourselves from beating up on yourself, right? So you are keeping yourself from punishing your brain for the awareness and instead you're rewarding your brain for the awareness and very quickly you can you can increase the the consciousness of any behavior so that ties us back to the early part of the fire process because really celebrating awareness even though it's really necessary because you got to stop people from beating up on themselves it also what it is is just an example of the F for find because every time you celebrate your awareness what you're doing is you're telling your brain hey when I'm in this circumstance tell me and that is maybe one of the most fundamental things that people can take away from listening to this, which is if you want to change anything, one of the, the most straightforward ways to that is that every time you notice anything about that circumstance, whether you're three quarters of the way in it, whether you are just where you would be physically when you would do the behavior, anything in that, if you celebrate that, oh, look, I just realized, hey, I'm right here where I want to do this better behavior, or oh, I just realized I'm... I am just did the whole behavior, whatever it is, if you celebrate that, what you're doing is you're bringing it to conscious. And then, then 
the other thing that happens is, of course, the celebration also often interrupts whatever behavior you're, you would be doing. Because, for example, if you really do a touchdown dance, you got to put down the potato chip bag, right? So you're, you're now not eating potato chips. You're also not beating up on yourself with the two habits you used to have. And so instead, you're creating this interruption, something different. And then the best thing to do is to immediately do something that is some kind of replacement. Even if you're not hungry anymore or you're not, and, and often potato chip bags are not really about hunger anyway. <laughs> if, if you can, right, if you can do something, you're like, like, well, what is it that I really was wanting to get out of this? and you just do a little bit of that replacement behavior, then you've started connecting the neurons, neurons that fire together, wire together. You've fired them at the same time. You've started to wire together this new, this new habit. And so now you're, you've just begun the process of new habit, which a new habit is become aware, celebrate, do the thing I want to do. And then eventually it becomes become aware, do the new thing, celebrate afterward. And that way, that way you're rewarding yourself so something you talked about, your brain can change your whole reality. Yes, and this is this is related to when sometimes people ask me, well, what's one thing, if I, if I only knew one thing about the brain, <laughs> what would I need to know? And that's that the brain is constantly processing or prioritizing, rather. The brain is constantly prioritizing only a small portion of all the information it's bringing in. And let me say that in another way so people really get it. The There's always more information coming in than your brain can utilize, especially that can bring to consciousness. So one of the most important decisions that's always being made is what you're telling your brain to pay attention to. And that's then what creates one's reality. One's reality is not all of the information in the environment. One's reality is not all of the the neurons that, that could fire, or uh, let's say, one's reality is not the story of everything in your environment because that story is too large. So your brain is constantly deleting some piece of information saying, well, that's not important enough. Then it's categorizing other pieces, like generalizing, putting it into a category. And and sometimes to get into a category, it's also distorting it. The developers of neurolinguistic programming did had a nice, and it's actually a generalization, a nice generalization in saying that the brain is constantly deleting, distorting, and generalizing. And it does that in order to get entire world of possible information down into a small enough set of inputs that it can actually process and pay attention to. And so that then determines the reality. Reality is not all of the things that are happening, all of the potential things that you might feel at any one moment. It's instead the results of the decision of what to limit it to and then what's wired to those limited inputs. So the one thing that the people should know about their brain is that whatever their experience of reality is right now, that's a portion of the total possibility. And so if they change what they're deleting and what they're generalizing and what they're distorting, then they'll get a different subset of the reality. And so the reality can change without their environment changing because the, what they're paying attention to changes. What they're uh, focusing on after they initially pay attention, that, that all those things change. Yeah, it seems like kind of the difference between optimists and pessimists. Where it seems like the more pessimistic someone is, the more time they spend watching news of like horrific events and really investing a lot of emotional energy and like getting upset about that. Whereas it seems like optimistic people do the exact opposite, where they're always looking for ways the world is good, ways things are going well, things to be happy about. And it's like the same world, right? You know, we're not living in like completely separate realities. It's just that one person, like in their newsfeed or whatever on Facebook, is going through like, I don't know, mass shootings they can get like way down in that rabbit hole and like why does this keep happening and then but on the other side of you 
it seems like entrepreneurs are generally like pretty optimistic people where they see like the potential for the world to change and they can really feel like a lot of power and connection over their world. Like the ways things that can constantly get better. So it seems like they may be focused on like this other area. And entrepreneurship is really interesting because you have to be both an optimist and a pessimist, but at different portions of your business. So you have to be an optimist to be an entrepreneur at all, and then you have to be pessimistic around your finances. You have to to be conservative and cautious around the assumptions you're making financially. You bring up optimists and pessimists. You may be aware of a great study about optimists and pessimists. What they did was they took people— and they ran them first through a set of tests to categorize them as either optimist or pessimist. And then they put them into a circumstance where they had to do two different things. First, they had a whole set of tasks. And the first thing they had to do was they had to estimate how difficult the task was going to be. Okay? So that's an evaluation task. Then the second thing they had to do was they had to do the task. So that's then an implementation. So they had to evaluate and they had to implement. Who do you think was more accurate in their assessments of the difficulty or ease of the task. I want to say the pessimists. And you would be correct. In fact, that's what pessimists often say about optimists, right? They they're say realists. Exactly. They say we're realistic. Self-described realists. Right? They self-described realists. And, and they're, they're right in the sense that they were, they were more realistic, they were more accurate about the difficulty of the task. The optimists underestimated the difficulty. Their evaluation was inaccurate. Who was better at then actually doing the task? The optimist. The optimist. Yeah. So their their unrealistic assessment of the difficulty of the task allowed them to bring more of their potential and, and more of their confidence and more engagement into the task. So they did better. So the end result is that they got better results from their unrealistic attitude. And you have to be optimistic in that way to be an entrepreneur at all. You have to look at the world and you have to be, have prioritized your brain to, to look at the possibilities instead of all, all the potential negatives. That's also why so many entrepreneurs have problems with their finances because they make overly optimistic estimates about their finances. So you actually have to be able to have two sets back to the neurons that fire together, wire together. You have to have two sets of neuro wiring. You have to have optimistic wiring that you've set up for most circumstances. But to be a successful entrepreneur, you actually have to have wired in a conservative or even pessimistic approach when you sit down to look at your numbers and you sit down to look at the you know, how much reserves you like that and so that's a place where i encourage entrepreneurs to intentionally create new habits through using the fire process sit down and say well what attitude do i need when i sit down and look at my numbers where am i in that circumstance what am i going to be looking at and so then what they can do is they can actually create a an intentional habit where where when they sit at the desk where they do, one of my recommendations is that entrepreneurs only do their bookkeeping in it, or looking at their finances in a particular location, because then that location can be wired in as a reminder to a certain kind of thinking. And then that thinking, and then they reward themselves every time they're aware that they're being conservative, they're being, they're, 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 they're being non-optimistic, they're being cautious. In those circumstances, they would reward themselves, and they would reward themselves by going things like, ha, look at me, I'm so flexible. Look at me, I can be... Uh, I, I can be conservative as well as optimistic, right? And and they do a little touchdown dance kind of thing there. So they wire in feeling good there about being cautious, where in other circumstances, they feel good about being risk-taking. And so they want to be able to have the ability to do both of them. Do you want to talk more about other traits of successful entrepreneurs? 
Yes. One of the other traits of successful entrepreneurs is the is ability to pivot. Right? There's a lot of conversation in the, in the world. That's a big world, a word in the last five, 10 years, right? The ability to, to make a change quickly. And the ability to pivot requires the ability to begin to let go of, of what you're, of your plan. And so that ties back to the ability to your emotional control. If you can't feel good about, about changing something, giving something up, and if you're so locked into it, if your self-worth is tied in to feeling like you're going to complete what you said or you are going to, you're going to have the particular success the way you thought you were going to get it, excuse me, any of those things, then you're not going to be able to pivot. So you have to be able to to rapidly change your your assessment of a circumstance and then you have to be able to change your your mood because when you realize that you're not getting the result you want most people feel bad but feeling bad is not actually drives people to new action so the one of the other tips about the brain is that the fastest way to change an emotion in any moment is a, is a kind of a hack. And again, I say this is important because the ability to pivot requires you to first pivot your emotion. When you realize that things aren't working the way they are, you generally feel bad. And so you gotta be able to change that emotion before you can change your action. It's interesting like that you mentioned that because it seems that's a fairly well talked about like cognitive bias, especially like in the investing world because people will just like ride their losses like all the way down to zero yep. because they wanna d- delay that bad feeling. Mm-hmm. That's right. Kahneman got a Nobel Prize for for showing that people will do more to avoid pain than they will to get the equal amount of pleasure. So for people doing that, like the key is, based on what you're saying, is to to celebrate. Yeah, like I'm I'm great at taking small losses. Look at me. I can change all these other hard parts about you. But if you can just say like, yeah, no, like I'm great at this. That's right. And so often, in order to be able to celebrate in those circumstances. You first can use this hack that I was talking about. The the fastest way to hack into your brain to change emotion in a moment is through using your body. Because if you change your 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 body, then that is a direct loop. We're getting neurons that fire together, wire together, and there's a lot of neurons that are tracking your your physicality, what's happening in your body. And you'll notice that. When, when people are stressed, when people are depressed, when people are upset, their head comes down, their eyes come down, and all of those things are linked to neural connections of, of sadness, pessimism, negativity, uh, all, all of those things. And so, so then they have this loop where now, you say, even if they know that the best thing they could do right now is celebrate that, that I can take small losses, if, if I'm in a fetal position, it's impossible for me to celebrate anything, right? And so change your body before you change your emotions. The funny thing about this is that my dad, the entrepreneur, wasn't great with emotions at home. He used to just tell me, keep your chin up, which in my family meant uh, basically suck it up. But it turns out that physiologically he was exactly right. If I could keep my chin up, if I could keep my eyes up, it's actually easier to feel positive and it's easier to think about future events when your eyes are tracking to the horizon. And, and so when you physically change that, the, the, the trick is to change your body to the way it would be if you already felt the way you want to feel. Same thing. When people are sad, what kind of music do they tend to listen to? Like usually sad music. Sad music that. because the neurons are linked together. Neurons that fire together wire together. They felt that way and they've listened to that music. They've listened to that music and they felt that way. So it's wired together. But what they want to do 
what they need to do if they want to feel different is to listen to the music that's linked to the way they want to feel, not the way they do feel. And the moment that music comes on, there's going to be a dissonance for a moment, just the same way when you celebrate right after you've made a mistake, if you're celebrating your awareness, there's a dissonance. If you stick with that dissonance for just a second, if you, if you actually physically, if you breathe through it and you keep your head up, the neurons that are connected to the happier music will start to fire really fast. And now you start to feel better. And, and so the music, physicality, uh, the two things that you can do really quickly in any circumstance to then help you to feel different. And then you, then you can celebrate not only that, hey, look, at I'm the kind of guy that can take a small loss. You can also celebrate, and look, I'm the kind of guy that can control all my emotions. I'm in control. And that's a, that something that taps into a lot of entrepreneurs. They like to be risk takers, but they also like to be in control. So the, if, if they start to associate the ability to control their emotions, like really control them, not control them by, by pretending, right, pushing them down. Yeah, right. <laughs> But, but actually feel different in any moment, then it can become addictive. And people are like, whoa, look at me. I can be in this circumstance and boom, I can feel different and I can take action. And that ties into one of the, the another buzzwords in the entrepreneur world, which is rapid implementation. They show that, that if you can implement rapidly, that's a better predictor for success than implementing accurately. So it's the whole fail fast, fail forward approach that if you can implement, do that, if you can do something quickly and find out how it works. And so that's where my work, I think, is really helpful for entrepreneurs. Even my book, which is focused on worry, stress, and anxiety, is really, it's about habit formation. And it's really effective for entrepreneurs because the tools in it allow you to do the thing that other people are telling you to do. People say fail fast, fail forward without telling entrepreneurs how they can emotionally do that. Do you want to talk about how this ties into your current work? Yeah, so currently I've shifted a little bit from the Brain Coach Brad and Lifetime Optimization that I was doing because I'm not offering coaching right now. I'm not offering executive coaching. I haven't currently done, recently done my 30 Days to Worry-Free Achievement program, although people can access a lot of that in the book, The Unworried Brain. But what I realized is that for so many people, one of the barriers to emotional success, to happiness, is their nutrition. Because if you have bad nutrition, then that activates a lot of the same neurons as negative emotion. So that people will feel anxious, but they're not actually feeling anxious, they're actually being driven by poor nutrition, by too much sugar, for example. Or people will feel depressed, but actually it's brain fog that's again being driven by poor nutritional. So this year I bought a superfoods company, an organic superfoods company called Soul Organic. And the right now we, we sell superfood powders like spirulina and maca. And the goal is to position ourselves as the first company that that is completely sustainable because we do sustainable sourcing of the products. We're sustainable in the environment because we plant a tree for every purchase. And then we're sustainable for our customers' health goals because we teach habit formation. That's a part of the program is people get are, are beginning to get a free training on how to take any health habit and turn it into a habit. And then we're going to be offering a additional product with that. And the product is going to be an online membership program called Follow Through Magic. And that program is going to teach people how to become a master of the magic of habit formation and apply it to their health and apply it to their business and apply it to their relationships. And it'll be a live program there where I'll be doing twice a month teaching people these strategies, going and taking all this great available information right now around habit formation, TEDx programs and TED Talks and blogs, 
and then actually teaching people, guiding them through doing it. Because that, again, is the barrier for so many people with any information. They don't need information, what they need experience, the practice, fire it. And so that's what I'm really excited about right now is that follow through magic will actually allow me to build up a community of people who are passionate about changing their own habit. And in the long term, I think that my goal is, is really put those people in a position where they can change their world, not just their own success and happiness, but that then they can teach other people these same skills. And again, it comes back to what I said earlier about unnecessary suffering, that when people know how their brain works, they know how habits are, they they suffer a lot less, they're a lot happier, and they're a lot more successful. And that's really my goal with So you're really interested in certain uh, movement. That's right, because the anytime when somebody knows how to do that, and they, they're going to look and feel differently to the people around them. And as they be, begin to be capable of doing it, and then they teach other people how, what they're doing, then that spreads. As I say, I'm really in many ways mission-driven in terms of reducing unnecessary suffering. I really feel like I'm here to help people break through their perceived limits. Remember, that comes back to the brain is always has a perception of the reality because it's limited uh, amount of information. And I want to teach people that they can break through those perceived limits. The actual limits of what their brain is capable of are way beyond. That's fascinating. Um, so I think we're down to like the last few minutes here. Um, do you mind if I ask like my three like final questions? Good. So do you have any advice for aspiring entrepreneurs? I think the the best advice I have for entrepreneurs is to learn to master their emotions. Mastering the the ability to handle fear and to handle greed, which is sort of over-optimism and over-pessimism. You can think of it that way. The ability to handle those things and to be able to manage their emotions in the moment is the is the most important skill that they don't teach in business school or they teach when people become and so that that the first advice i i would give to someone is that as you're mastering your your business as you're setting up your business you need to to work on yourself it seems like that's something i've heard a lot in like the last even just the last month we're talking about like eq instead of your iq yeah the ability to be empathic with other people and i think that Emotional management is a really understated portion of the EQ. It is, is not really emphasized, and, and that's because, again, most people don't think of their emotions as habits. So if you go to your uh, late 20s, and then if you, if you had an extra hour a day, how would you tell your past self to spend that? I think the most important thing that I could tell my past self now is to see every experience as practice, to see every experience as preparation. And again, neurons that fire together, wire together, that, that's how the brain works. Any choice we make, anything we do makes it a little bit easier to do that same way again. And so that if I could encourage my young 20 self to view myself as a scientist, because again, scientists, if they, I know most scientists don't do this, right? But if you think of a scientist pouring liquids into a beaker and they, and they, they put the gray powder in the, in the blue liquid and nothing happened. So then they put the, the gray powder in the blue liquid and then nothing happens. And they put the gray powder in the blue liquid and then nothing happens. And then, they, no, somewhere along like the second or third thing, they're not going to keep putting the gray powder in the blue liquid. They're going to go, oh, well, I guess my theory that putting the gray powder in the blue liquid was going to give me a result isn't one. And that they're going to adjust their, their uh, approach. They're going to try something else. And if they put the 
pink powder in the blue liquid and the lab catches on fire, right? The scientist doesn't go, oh, I'm so stupid, I'm a failure, I'm, I'm never gonna succeed as a scientist. No, they, they, a successful scientist goes, oh, well that was a great piece of information. <laughs> and, and now we need to put signs up. Whatever you do, don't put the pink powder in the, in the blue liquid because it's gonna set the lab on fire. So if I had told my, my 20-some self, to look at being an entrepreneur as like being a scientist, then I think that would have been really helpful. Of course, it then would have required me get the emotional management to do it because a good scientist has that emotional management. I'm sure there are some scientists who do flunk out of being a scientist because they have too much of their their own personal, exactly, they can't be adjusted. They're like, oh, I can't believe I did that. Okay, so I did phrase that. That was, a, that was a still a super interesting answer. So a different question. Imagine you can go back back in time, if you had an extra hour a day 10 years ago, how would you spend that hour? Ten years, if 10 years ago I had an extra hour a day to spend, then I would spend it focusing on financial preparation, and in particular on addressing the emotion involved with finances, because I think I was definitely one of those entrepreneurs who found it hard to to pay as much attention as I could to my finances and to be cautious with my finances because of the the fear of the emotions around the the negativity, fear, the feelings uh, involved with, well, what if I'm doing badly or my projections? And so I would would simultaneously have been working to, to deal with those emotions, but also dealt with it by being more and more knowledgeable. One of my business mentors, Keith Cunningham, likes to say that your finances are your scorecard and can't know what your score is in your business, then you don't know what to change. It comes back to total quality management. If you can't measure something, then you can't manage it. Any books that have been really influential for your life? And we'll definitely have a plug for your book, The Unworried Brain, too. Yes. So the book Stumbling on Happiness that I mentioned is a, is a great book to help people understand why it is that they're not as good at predicting their happiness. The I recommend Keith Cunningham, who's a, been a mentor of mine, and he has a, I'm not recalling Keith's, the name of Keith's book and program right now, but oh, Keys to the Vault, that's what it's called, called Keys to the Vault, and he has a, a great a great program there. And the another thing that I would recommend, uh, in addition to my book, The Unworried Brain, about, about emotions, I would recommend Influence by Robert Cialdini, and he also has a more recent book, and if you're not familiar with Robert Cialdini, you definitely want to be... Is it Presuasion? Yes, Presuasion is a fabulous book right now about teaching people how to influence other people by what they say before they ask for what they want. And so I, I highly recommend those. Again, in the same in that kind of same way, that book is a little bit about priming. Uh, Malcolm, Gladwell's book, Bl- Malcolm Gladwell's book, Blink, is about the power of, of priming people. Again, and what priming does, back to the brain, what priming does is it directs the the limitation, what gets delete, deleted, distorted, and generalized. When you prime somebody, you are affecting which neurons are going to fire, and so you're already leaning them toward a certain set of, of their experience. You're basically affecting their reality, affecting their perspective by what you're telling their brain to pay. And so that's, that's real. And if people want to know more about what I do, they should go to braincoachbrad.com and they can also go to Soul Organics. It's called it's soul-organics.com for the products we talked about. And eventually, the follow-through magic program will be available both through braincoachbrad.com and through the people who are interested in habit formation. They can join our community. 
Oh, excellent. Well, thanks so much for your time. I, I really appreciate it. Oh, it's great. I love talking about the brand. And I love what you're doing because the more that, that people know about things and the more they're passionate about it, then the more likely they are to be so good work. I'm super grateful for Brad's time. I just learned a lot. I've been putting a few of his insights to work over the past week since we talked, and it's freaky the extent to which I can already feel a difference in my thoughts. I haven't achieved enlightenment yet or anything, but I can see just a glimmer of a world where my emotions and my responses to things feel like more like conscious choices than like a knee-jerk reaction. Here's what I've been doing, and I encourage you to give it a try. This is all stuff I've taken from Brad's book and our conversation. So every time you notice yourself thinking in a negative way or doing whatever other thing that you don't want to be doing as often, do a quick fist pump or make some other similarly triumphant gesture and exclaim to yourself, good job, way to notice. Reward yourself for having that awareness. And actually, the cheesier and more enthusiastic your words and actions are, the better. Not only does this help you pull out of the negative tailspin, but it'll really train your brain to become aware of your thoughts earlier over time, which really sets in motion your ability to make progress, even on issues that you've been stuck on. I think this is especially valuable now, what with Thanksgiving and the holidays coming up, lots of stress, maybe some frustrated family situations going around. So you can use it as an opportunity to make your brain a better ally and really just enjoy the holidays a lot more this year. Music for this podcast is by Cambrian Explosion, who once surfed a massive tidal wave and lived to tell the tale. You can download their music at cepdx.bandcamp.com and on Apple iTunes. You can also listen on Spotify and YouTube. If you like this podcast conversation and want to hear more like it, make sure you're subscribed in your podcast app under the Why Try Show page. While you're there, please do me a favor by leaving a rating and review so that others can discover Why Try. You can find a complete list of conversations in your podcast app and at nicholaspeel.com. For updates, check out facebook.com slash whytrypodcast. Thanks for listening.